This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts, and Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. If you aren't married to the other adult in your home, how do you handle household finances? The relationships in an unmarried home could be cohabitation, roommates, or intergenerational. Do you discuss who pays the bills? How should expenses be handled? Those are some of the questions we hope to address today, in addition to taking your personal finance questions. Contact us by email. It's money at mpbonline.org. So good morning to both of you. Hope you're doing well this morning. Good Good morning, morning, Kevin. Nancy, I see that you're still enjoying your time in uh, North Carolina. We will start with it's, you. What? Uh, yeah, it's my first day with uh, shorts on, even though I know it's summertime down in Mississippi. Uh, it actually is. It's been it's been quite warm here. I'm I'm about to take a trip to New York, so I've got to pull all my cold weather gear out and pack it. From yeah, we've been wearing shorts in between our tornadoes. <laughs> so, wait, a tornado comes, you just go inside. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. Go back outside, wear your shorts. All right, so Nancy, uh, financial news. What uh, what would you want to share with oh, us today? Well, it's, it's a tough start of the year, and um, we have heard the word drawdown. So for our listeners, a drawdown is the percentage amount that it's a um, an asset has dropped from its peak. That's not really a good measure because you really shouldn't measure from the peak of, of the gain on your asset, but we hear that from people all the time. As soon as they see it in black and white, they put it in their mm-hmm. pockets, and they don't have the broader view of, well, where did I start from? But what's been unusual about the start of this year, the drawdown, the decline, has occurred in both stocks and bonds, right, Ryder? Yep, that's been weird. Yeah. And what are those percentage amounts that we've been looking at? So stocks, I was just checking, are down around 12 or 13 percent if you're looking at the S&P 500. And bonds were down about 10 percent last I checked. I think they might be uh, might have a little bit of a boost today. But um yeah, that, that's a that's a fairly significant, especially just from the start of the year. And that's pretty scary for a lot of investors. So what do we tell them? So the important thing to remember is that you probably don't remember all of the other 10 to 12 percent drawdowns. Yeah. You've probably forgotten about those because they happen two out of three years. This is something we've talked about. These sort of things happen all the time, especially in stocks. Bonds, that's a lot less frequent. People aren't really freaking out about the bond situation. Though. That was, I think we, we all kind of knew about that one pretty strongly, but the stock drawdowns, two out of three years, stocks pull back 10% or so. One out of four years, then they pull back 20%. And so we had that in in 2008, they were down way more than 20%. We had that in 2020, they were down more than 20%. This year, they're only down 12 to 13%. It was kind of a big stretch between those, but it's, it's not uncommon. So these are risks that we know about as investors. These are risks that we expect as investors, but we still expect long-term returns. When we talk about return every year, when we say, oh, well, the S&P's 500 is an average of 8%. I'm making that number up. Don't hold me to it. 8% return. It's not 8% every single year. It's not It's not two-thirds of a percent every single month like your Social Security increase. It's 
it's some years it goes up 30%, some years it goes down 30%, but you throw a couple of these together and you get an 8% average. So, but we, it still hurts. It, yeah. it absolutely hurts. You don't, you don't want to see it go down, even yeah. though you know it can. You know that's one of the risks. And, and so there's a lot of different investors in the stock market. You know, some people are just starting saving. Some people are saving for a specific goal that's going to happen in five years. Some people are saving for, you know, the big ambiguous goal of retirement, which, oh, I'm going to retire in 15 years. And then from there, I'm going to need money for another 20, 25 years. Just depends on how long I live. Hopefully I live for long, happy life. Uh, so we know about all these different types of investors, so their portfolios are going to be different because their needs are different. So when people say, well, I, I, this is my life savings and I depend on this, well, if you are 40 years old and you're planning on working until 70, well, you may depend on it in the future, but you're really depending on your income right now and you're still saving. And this is a great opportunity. I saw somewhere Warren Buffett buying more stocks than he was in 2008. Uh, make what you will of that. Of course, he has got more money than he did in 2008. A two. Um, if you are pretty, pretty good advice, yeah. <laughs> he's uh, he's always always buying when it's down. That's that's his favorite time to buy. And if, if even for folks who are retired or living in their retirement, say you're seventy five, well you, maybe you've got fifteen twenty years to live. You still do have a long term time horizon. Y yes, you could have just cash that you're living on, but if your cash runs out in in 10 years, then what are you going to do in year 11? Whereas if you invest in stocks, the likelihood that they're down over a 10-year period is very slim. And, and there has never been a, I believe it's a 15 or slightly more than 15-year period where stocks are down in the U.S. So investing, even when you think, oh, well, I don't have a long time, you probably have a lot longer than you are thinking. Absolutely. And we have a big event this uh, week. Tomorrow, the Federal Reserve will meet, and we are expecting them to announce a pretty big interest rate increase, probably 50 basis points. And Ryder, you want to tell our listeners what a basis point is? A basis point is one one hundredth of a percent. So you usually measure bond yields in percentage, though. Know, Three and a half percent. Everyone quotes their mortgage in eighths of a percent. Usually, that's just kind of the convention there. But basis points are just—they're just more accurate. They're obviously, down to the one one hundredth, you know, two decimal places, and that's what we quote them in the bond market. So, fifty basis points is half a percent, and that will um, then trickle down to just about everything. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, it will finally get down to our money market rates and our CD rates. Yeah, so that should be good for savers. And and just w and another comment on, on kind of the portfolio management we've been doing. You know, managing money for somebody. You know, you're talking about someone's life savings, and that's something that if if you work with an advisor, that's something they take seriously that's you know they you put a lot of trust in them and it's a lot of responsibility for them to kind of carry and support your financial life they're taking all of your hard work all of your hard work over the years and 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 they're carrying through the rest of your financial life and and so a, a lot of times people feel that oh these times are really i can't i can't speak to my advisor about this they would love to hear from you uh if you have concerns if you have changes uh, in your life that you need to share with them, always, never, never hesitate to reach out um, because yeah, that's something that, that we take very seriously. 
this is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Uh, did I read recently that inflation is easing slightly? Yes, it is. Um, and the latest numbers, I think we just got them yesterday maybe, uh, brings them back into more historical ranges in the 3 to 3.5% range, but we're going to see. All right, today we're going to talk about money advice for unmarried households. So if a couple who lives together is not getting married, why would they need to discuss finances? Ryder, let's start with you. So I, I'm a big advocate of people discussing finances, kind of no matter what their relationship stage are. I think you can go back to our Valentine's Day episodes for that. That. Um, so it's one, if you're sharing a household, you probably have some shared expenses. You're probably not actually counting every time someone turns on a light and turns off a light and splitting that really evenly. So there's going to be utility bills. Maybe you share some cooking. Maybe you share, maybe you had to pay for a furniture. And one thing to establish, just regardless of your relationship, is, is who owns this? It, even if it's just a situation where you know you're going to be living with somebody temporarily or not necessarily that you're going to be living with them forever, you want to say, okay, well, when I move out, I am taking the couch because the couch is mine. Uh, so you just need to know what assets, what actual things in the house are yours, and then what sort of what sort of responsibilities each one of you has for various bills. So that, that's just an important place to start, and everyone's going to be there. So, Nancy, I guess uh, how much the assets get commingled sort of depends on what the situation is. Uh, certainly a roommate is a little bit different from, say, a couple that is planning on mm -hmm. eventually getting married, moving in exactly. together. Exactly, yeah. Um, so if you are romantically linked, you might be linking your finances as well. But at the same time, Kevin, there are a lot of married couples that we work with who do not commingle their finances. That's true. They have different arrangements. And so our philosophy, every time somebody comes in, I will ask them, okay, how do you do money? How do you manage these things? And once they tell me what they do and how they do it, I stay out of it. That's none of my business. <laughs> if, it um, if it works for them, yeah. it works for them. Right, exactly. Whatever works is whatever you should do. I think what we're also seeing more and more, Kevin, are intergenerational households where, uh, you know, mom or dad is now uh, moving in with a grown child. They may be purchasing a house together. And that starts to get really complicated because you've got that parent-child relationship and there may be other children who are not part of the household. Well, how do you make provisions? to make sure inherited assets are, are yeah. maintained for those children who are not part of that arrangement. So that gets a, a little tricky as far as, well, what happens to the house if um, mom or dad passes away mm -hmm. and how is all of that handled? That's an important point about when you're inheriting or even just, you know, say you have a jewelry collection that you want to give to a specific person. If you don't have uh, written a formal way of documenting, one, your ownership, you know, if that's an agreement between the two of you or if you just have your receipts uh, and and also who you want that to go to. We talk about wills all the time. It, it never it's, it's not like there's ever a situation where it's not, not a good idea to have a will. Being able to have control of those assets, even when you're not there to say this is who it goes to. That's important to have to document and to have those conversations. 
If you have a question for our experts, send an email to money at mpbonline.org. We're talking about unmarried households. How many households have a roommate? We'll tell you that next. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. presented on Money Talks is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult a financial advisor or any other qualified professional for guidance about your personal finance questions. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. You're listening to Money Talks. Our website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org, is one way to hear past broadcasts. You can also download the MPB Public Media app and listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. According to a Pew Research study in 2017, nearly 79 million adults, that's about 31% of the adult population, lived in a shared household, which is defined as a household with at least one extra adult who's not the household head, the spouse, or unmarried partner of the head, or of an 18- to 24-year-old student. So we're talking about unmarried household finances today, but also taking your personal finance questions, and we've got Mike on the line from Tupelo who has a question. Good morning, Mike. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, great show this morning. My question is, based on rising interest rates, the, uh, you know, the tips, um, bonds versus I-bonds offered to the government, and mm. what would be uh, a strategy to look at uh, in this interest rate climate? Yeah, so TIPS bonds, and just kind of a little background on both. I know we've talked about them recently. The I-bonds you buy directly at treasury dot, uh, treasurydirect.gov. It's more like opening up a savings account at the Treasury almost. You get an interest rate. You get two interest rates, actually. The first one is a fixed rate for the life of that account that you've opened for that specific bond, and that's 0% right now. And the second one is is an inflation adjustment. And so that's roughly what is CPI. So that's when we've been hearing about, oh, this 7 or 8% guaranteed federal bond, that's what that is. And that adjusts every six months. You get a new rate for every six-month period. So if inflation stays high, you keep getting a high rate. If inflation drops back down, you get a low rate. And 
nothing nothing but the fixed rate and a, a small inflation rate so tips on the other hand are just freely trading bonds out there you can buy them on the bond market you can buy funds that hold nothing but tips and that stands for treasury inflation protected securities and those work by each one is issued just like a regular treasury bond it has a coupon that it pays that's the, your interest and there is an annual adjustment on the principal uh, to add that inflation value so as in as interest rates rise tips will act like other bonds in that they will fall when interest rates rise. Because if I have a bond that is paying 1% and all of a sudden someone comes out with a bond that pays 2%, nobody's going to want the one that's paying 1%. They're all going to ditch that and buy the other one until those things are roughly equal in value. So that is something we have seen in the past few days as people anticipate an interest rate rise. Also, the yield on tips has risen, which meant that the value Value has gone down. Um, they also, importantly, the time you buy them is really important. You actually want to buy tips when inflation expectations are really low because they come with a built-in inflation expectation, and that's called the break-even rate, which is essentially at what point would it be better would it be worth it to buy the regular treasury versus versus the inflation protected security? So, for instance, if you have a TIPS bond and it's built in with an inflation expectation of 4% for the next 10 years, and that does not materialize, say it's only 3%, you would have been better off buying the regular treasury. And that's my big caution with TIPS, uh, the, the break-even rates recently. The break-even rates have been very high, and while inflation has been high, with, when you're buying a longer-term tips bond, you're expecting that inflation to remain high, and that's and that's part that's the harder thing to to kind of speculate on. Do you do you think that inflation is going to remain high over the next ten years? I, mean, I don't know. Anything can happen in the next ten years. I'm not a huge fan of them right now. I'm a fan of them when inflation is uh, expectations are much 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 lower. And the buzz has all been about uh, this I-bond paying 7.12%. But with the news of inflation uh, easing, then uh, Ryder just mentioned, you know, they adjust every six months. And so we're going to see that pull back. And one of the best investments as an inflation hedge is uh, good dividend-paying stocks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and especially, Nancy, over the longer term, right? If, if you're yeah. buying a 10-year tips bond, then, well, why don't you, you – know, maybe you would be interested in looking at, at stocks instead because over 10 years, you would expect a much higher return out of stocks unless you're expecting just an absolute apocalypse scenario with inflation, which is something, which is something that some people do want to protect against. Um, and I'm not opposed to people – people's interest in I-bonds. I think it, it's a very interesting tool. And if you have $10,000 and you want to set that aside in some perfectly inflation hedged way, that is a way to do it. But the thing is, the thing that I look at is typically the, the time scales of these securities very often don't line up with what people are trying to do. Sometimes they do, and the, those, these are perfect tools for them. 
But if you're looking to hedge your inflation for a very long time, you might think, oh, a long-term tip spot. No, I I think stocks are probably a better way to do that. You're going to get more growth. These companies with raising prices are the ones, they're the ones benefiting over the long term. They don't benefit from surprise inflation and things like that. And they're naturally going to raise those dividends. Uh, Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to lower a dividend. And, and then if you're saving money for a very short-term need, so say you had bought, say you had saved money last year and you were going to spend it this year, then yes, it would be nice to have had some inflation protection because that dollar you saved is all of a sudden worth 93 cents this year, although that certainly does depend on exactly what you were planning on buying. Used cars have gone a little bit down in price and new cars have continued to go up, for instance. But if you had put that in the perfect inflation hedge, an I-bond, then it's just the, it's not an appropriate tool because that's a lockup for five years. You sacrifice interest if you take it back out. And also, it's only $10,000 if you're saving, for, for instance, for a car. It might have been, sometimes it might be more trouble than it's worth to kind of set that sort of thing up for just a short-term uh, account. So, so I guess uh, that's a very long-winded say, way of saying <laughs> It's very specific to what you're trying to accomplish. And I think just throwing the words inflation protection out there does not cover all the scenarios. My, my goal is, you know, say a 10000 a place to park $10,000 of retirement account money that's not needed for the next five years in a place that I don't have to worry about. And based on what, that. yeah, with that, the I bond, you just heard, you yeah. just said, sounds like the I bond is mm-hmm. is is the preferred choice of those two, and of course, then there is the dividend paying stocks. Yes. Either individually or in a fund. Yes, and, and my, what I would say as well is with the with the stocks. With a five-year time horizon, the I-bond is much preferable to that. It's Again, that's kind of the perfect scenario is you're trying to hedge inflation pretty perfectly, and this is money you don't want to take a big risk with uh, for that limited time. That's, that's Mike, almost perfect. I would, I would say to you, you're having to do this through Treasury Direct and setting up an account, and uh, if 10000 represents a large part of your assets, fine. But if it's a very small piece, you have to really ask yourself, is it worth it for that extra accounting? If something happens to you, can your family members track that down? Can they find those accounts? Um, that's all something to consider as well. Good point. Okay, great. Thanks for your help this morning. Carry on. All right. Great call, Mike. Thanks. Thank you, Mike, for your call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. We're talking about unmarried household finances today. Um, So, Nancy, why do you think a couple would need a non-marital agreement? Well, you do need to specify um, the payment on the house if you own the house and what happens if something happens to one member of that uh, couple. And so there needs to be a formal agreement. Um, The problem is if you're not married, you don't have those conventions of a marriage to protect you legally. So that's what this agreement would do. 
And Ryder, I imagine if uh, you come into a, re uh, a relationship like that with assets, you would want to protect them in some way. Yes. And just to kind of echo what Nancy was saying, <coughs> marriage entails all sorts of legal structures. And, and so it's kind of a known thing in, in law. This is what happens when one partner dies. This is what happens in the event of a divorce. This is what happens with children of one or the other. The, the, the kind of rules there are known and everyone, you can, you can buy things together and know all of the implications for the future. When you're not married, it's, that's why you need that non-marital agreement because those things just aren't necessarily known or understood. One thing I always caution people about is creating legal situations that don't reflect the real world. So for instance, a married couple having a joint account that's very that's very natural you are you are a joint you are a, you're married a joint account has very well defined legal structure there but if you're just friends and you open up a joint account oh for the purpose of paying bills but okay well who put the money in well so and so didn't put their money in this month well all of a sudden is this money mine is this money yours what does that mean that's that, that you're creating a structure that might not really reflect what's happening uh, in the real world we're talking about unmarried household finances how prevalent is cohabitating we'll learn that next you're listening to money talks on mpb think radio some work done on your truck listen to autocorrect thursdays at 10 saturdays at 11 and mpb license plate reminds you that mpb is with you wherever you go go to your county office and ask for an mpb car tag mpb and cars better together Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio, a personal finance broadcast. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lottridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. While the share of people who are currently cohabitating remains far smaller than the share who are married, the share of adults age 18 to 44 who have ever lived with an unmarried partner, 59%, has surpassed the share who has ever been married, 50%. And that's according uh, to a, a, pre, a study by the Pew Research Center. We have got another caller on the line. So we say good morning to Bethany calling in from Prentice. Go ahead, Bethany. You're on the air. Hey, um, I'm 
new to all of this. I'm 39 and I'm trying to be self-determined. And I just want, I had a quick question about, I wanted your opinion on like robo-investors, like betterment. Mm. Yeah, so uh, we ha- I don't know if we've done a full show on the robo-investors. It was kind of a technology that I was pretty excited about because essentially it's just it's just automated investment, right? It's not it, – I think a lot of times it gets overhyped as just something super-duper special. But essentially a robo-advisor is usually a, a website where you can go, you can open up an account, they will ask you some questions kind of about your situation. So, for instance, your age, your income, what, where your goals are, you're saving for a house or you're saving for retirement. And then they'll say, well, this is what we think the best investment uh, portfolio for you is. And then you start putting in money and they just get it invested for you. You don't really have to do anything after that. They automate as much as possible. And so this is pretty cool. I will say that in practice, I've, I've played around with those. I have a Betterment account because that was one of the first and the biggest ones. And they're okay. So they are very low fee. Of course, for the low fee, you kind of get the lack of customization. You don't, you have, a, you can call them, you can get time and, and, and talk with a financial planner. I, I think someone who is serving a thousand different clients, maybe that's a little difficult for them, but it's, it's just not ideal. It's a, it's a decent way to get started, but once you are comfortable working with an advisor, I, and you and you need you have more complex questions you have more complex situation uh, a local an in person someone who you can talk with regularly might make a little more sense one of the issues I've had with uh, places like Betterment specifically, they're pretty archaic on their transfers out. So it's just not really watching out for their clients as they leave. And also just the way they trade is a little, I would describe it as a little too perfect in that they're constantly rebalancing. And when it came time to do my taxes, I had I had a 30-page form for them explaining what all they did. And it was just, that was just a bit much for a really small account where there might have been actually 50 cents in taxable gains. And so they're just a little too perfect there. They're great to get started. If you want a a way where you don't really have to think about it too much, it is a great way to get started. But you can just as well open up an account at a a large discount brokerage like TD Ameritrade or Schwab. Uh, We used to recommend Vanguard. Also, we've had a little bit, we've had a number of issues with Vanguard, the company lately, not their funds, but the company as a brokerage. Um, But TD Ameritrade or Schwab, it's now the same company. Fidelity is another one that's fairly good with retail clients. They will also be able to kind of give you some advice and guide some investments. It's a little more do-it-yourself, but you can you can do it in a you can also add money to those monthly. They also have they also have a lot more financial products you might need. Schwab's got a bank. You can have a credit card, debit card, checking account, etc. cetera. Uh, very good for all of those things. And they do have all of the investments. You can have kind of ultimate flexibility and make your own choices too. Bethany, let me just ask you, um, are you working? Yes. <clears throat> yes. Do you have a retirement plan available through your employer? No. 
No. Okay. So that's where something like this extra account would help you. And so you need to set up your own IRA, probably at 39. A Roth IRA would be appropriate for you. And I would just say whether you use Betterment or any of the other companies that Ryder mentioned, the important thing is for you to get started to make it automatic so that every month some money is going in and starting to build for you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, uh, Bethany, thanks for calling in. Hopefully we gave you some advice there so you can get started uh, on your goals, uh, your financial goals. <clears throat> so I think it's probably a good idea if people are get, living together and not getting married to go into the uh, relationship on the front end with an agreement. And we talked about the non-marital agreement. Uh, Ryder, what are some of the things that the non-married people you think need to agree on? So... Like we said, the ownership of assets, particularly ones that have been brought into the relationship or one that are going to be bought jointly, um, and, and this can include if people are buying a house together. That can get very interesting. But you need to anticipate issues that are come down the line. You need to anticipate what happens if there is a breakup. What happens if one or both have children together or outside? Who inherits these assets? So those are some things that are, are really important just to start. You have to be anticipating situations down the line. We've got another caller on the line. This time we're going to say good morning to Chris and Brandon. Go ahead, Chris. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Good. What do you have for us today? Um, I would uh, like to ask on the I-bonds I heard you talking about, um, are they – is it a better strategy to buy them in April than in May based on what you know the interest rate will be for the next six months? And then if you want something on the marital thing, maybe you can discuss tenants in common. Yeah, so on the I bonds, then I, and I don't have it in front of me for the for the date that it is, but there is a date that you purchase it by where you will get X interest rate, and then of course it, it resets after the next coupon. I'm, Nancy may have that I, information. I, I think the one that everyone was touting, the 7.12, the last date you could do that was April 22nd. So, you know, I think it's already reset. And uh, tenants in common, who wants to take that? Ryder? Yeah, so so there are some states that do tenants in common. We talked about this a little bit last week or the week before, uh, talking about joint uh, registration of assets, very often with uh, accounts, bank accounts, uh, brokerage accounts, but also with large assets like a house or something. You can register them in your own name. You can register them in two people's names. Some states do joint tenants with rights of survivorship. That's such as Mississippi does rights of survivorship where – if one person dies, then the account becomes the other person's. That's just the structure there. Uh, the survivor has the rights to the account, I guess, is maybe if you just unscramble those words, that's what you get. With tenants in common, then you can define how much each person owns of the account. Say you have a $100 account, you can split it 50-50. You can say this is 50% mine, 50% yours. And each person's share is dictated by their own will. So, or if it's in, I don't know if you could do this, put it in half in the name of a trust. That would be interesting. So essentially one person can have their own uh, children inherit or their own beneficiaries inherit that. And one person has their own. It makes it 
I think if, if, if you don't have each other, it does make it a little more complicated. So the state of Louisiana does this. There are a handful of states that do that. I do not have that list in front of me right now, but it is just another way of registering accounts in two people's names. And it's, you just have to understand that each person's will or, for instance, if they die without a will, how does that, how does the state dictate where that goes to? Because, again, it may not be the other owner. So that is a very good question and that you need to understand the implication of those different account registrations. Right, uh, Chris, Thank you. State your call this morning. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Another term uh, we can uh, discuss is uh, common law marriage. Uh, Nancy, what's that all about? Well, Mississippi does not allow for a common law marriage, and really that's just, you know, cohabiting and um, your partners, but you haven't gone through the official proceedings and registered as a married couple. And um, so there's the difference of there are legal protections that are offered to married couples. If you don't have that, then it gets very complicated when something happens to one or the other, when there's a split. Um, it is not recognized. Some states do recognize common law marriages and treat them very similar to an official marriage. Um, we were talking about things to put in a non-marital agreement. What about the idea of um, writing in there what we will use to resolve disputes, mediation, for example? Does, does that seem like a good idea? Yes, it's a good idea. Again, because you're with all of these agreements, you're anticipating situations that may arise. Even if you say, "Oh, it's so unlikely that the situation would arise," well, that, you definitely want to anticipate. You definitely want to have something in place for that. So, mediation, and I believe there was an in legal terms uh, in uh, on mediation just last week. So, there's a great resource here at mpbonline.org for that. That's right. You can uh, search for um, past episodes of In Legal Terms on our website. And as uh, your correct writer, it was just last week that they uh, talked about mediation. So you might want to investigate that. We are talking about uh, combining households today. Um, where are the most doubled up households? We'll tell you that next. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. 
We're pleased you found our show, Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. Here's a reminder, Tuesdays at 10 a.m., listen live to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Uh, we're talking about unmarried household finances uh, today on Money Talks. So, uh, Nancy, if you're part of an unmarried couple, how important is having a will? Well, it's very important, and um, you need to specify what happens to your assets if you die. And um, certainly, if you want that partner that you're not married to to inherit, it needs to be spelled out, because if it's not, it's going to go by state law. And again, back to the state of Mississippi, and they recognize marriages, and um, if that marriage... Um, is not legal, if it's just a partnership, then that person cannot legally inherit through state law. And so you have to spell it out in a will. All right. Uh, Ryder, what about um, an advanced directive for unmarried couples? Yeah, so an advanced directive or health care power of attorney, a lot of ways to, to phrase this. With a with a married couple, y'all again, there's a lot of rights that are already enshrined in law. So, some and you can have joint ownership of things, and therefore y'all are e- equal owners. All of these kind of point to other documents you need as an unmarried couple. So, uh, if you to make healthcare decisions for somebody, you have to be appointed a medical power of attorney. You have to have an a, advanced directive, and that can also outline things. You know, do you want to be kept on life support? Are there various types of life support you you want to receive or not? And also having again having those conversations with the person so that they know what your wishes are. And similar thing for a regular power of attorney you have to carefully consider is this am i in a is this relationship one where i do want to give the person actual power of attorney over over my accounts uh in the case of my incapacity etc so those are all documents that the other person that would allow the other person to act as you or help make decisions on your behalf should you uh not be able to so um, with an um, un- unmarried couple living together, um, would it be a good idea, possibly, Nancy, to have separate uh, accounts for each person, but also maybe a joint account from which bills can be paid and that sort of thing? Well, you can. And, you know, we see a lot of married couples who do that. They have separate accounts. Now, any of this requires a level of trust. So uh, sometimes you can say, we're going to split the bills, and um, Joe is going to handle this set of bills, and I'm going to handle this set of bills. Well, that means you've got to trust that other person will take care of that, and you don't wake up one morning and the power is out. You That's know? right. Um, so you have to trust each other in those arrangements as far as who will take care of what bills, or even if they're going into a joint account and uh, then funneled through that, typically there will be one person who is the bill payer. They're the one who is the bookkeeper to make sure those things get done appropriately. Again, a level of trust. Mm -hmm. So even if you're married, unmarried, whatever, if you're living together, you should be having conversations about how this will work. And you should have conversations whenever it goes awry. And it has gone awry at my house a few times where 
you know, we have misunderstanding, miscommunication about who was going to take care of what. You come back and you figure that out. And you talk about it on a regular basis. And I always encourage couples, again, married or unmarried, to have regular financial meetings where you sit down and look at well, what are our goals? What are we trying to do? What are we saving for? What are we building for? What are our assets? How do things look like uh, right now? What are our debts that are accumulated? Again, trust and transparency is important in all of that. All right, Nancy, who forgot to pay the electric bill? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it, that trust goes both ways, like you said. It's not just that you're trusting that the other partner's going to pay that bill. The, that partner's trusting that you're going to pay them, uh, pay you back uh, for 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 what you've what you've paid. And also, it's not just it's not just oh my gosh, am I going to be able to trust this person forever? It's what if they're out of town on the when the bill is due? What what if that happens? What if y'all what if y'all change providers? What if you change cell phone companies? What if you what if you move your banking out? Are those things getting taken care of? Especially when you just have a hodgepodge of oh I pay you back for this and you cover this completely. That's why again it's conversations to come up with that understanding and agreement and just making sure you're on having some way to make sure you're on top of it. And it's very typical to have a partnership where, um, certainly in a marriage, where uh, one person earns a lot more than the other. And so that becomes tricky trying to mm -hmm. navigate that and to make sure everybody still has some power in the relationship. That's true, because it's it's... What is what is what is fair to somebody? If somebody takes care of a lot of the domestic help and earns less money, are they are they pulling their weight? Do y'all consider that pulling your weight? If somebody earns a lot more and also takes care of some of the some of the thing, maybe they pay for pay for a lot of the outside activities. What what is a fair agreement? And are y'all both staying on the same terms with that? So we've talked about uh, buying a house together, but a lot of times uh, I think it might be a, a situation where uh, rent is involved, leasing uh, a, an apartment or a house. And I've uh, and on those afternoon judge shows, I've seen many, many ones where there ends, ends up being a dispute about that. So is it a good idea that everybody's on the lease, Nancy? Ooh, I don't know if they'll let you. Um Will they? So often, often, one person. so they may. But the thing to keep in mind is, are both people, how does that person on, on the other end, you know, how does your landlord, how does your electricity, how does your credit card company view that? Very often, it's both of you are still responsible. So just because one person didn't pay, but you said so-and-so was going to pay, doesn't, it affects both of you. And also, they can recourse to either one of you. They can come if if this is like a bill that could go to collections, for instance, then it will go on both of your records if you are both on there. So that's something to keep in mind. But if it's just one person on the lease and the agreement is you're both going to pay and the other person skips out, the person on the lease is that's totally right. Responsible. They'll, they yeah. will be on the hook. And and when if you have two people, you're equally on the hook. Even if even if I say, oh, you know, Ryder and Nancy, we share an apartment no, together. No, not <laughs> it's, it's whoever they can get their money at. Well, true, but but say we each paid a hundred dollars towards our rent, and one, you know, I'm the deadbeat. I didn't pay a hundred dollars. You're still just as responsible for my one hundred dollars as me. So the landlord comes after both of us, even if you're like, well, I gave you my hundred dollars landlord doesn't care they want their 200 
So we, we've talked about the idea of as much as we'd like to think that, uh, you know, we move in with someone that, that that's a long-term relationship, that, that to have an exit strategy. Is there something that in that exit strategy that we've not covered, maybe some th other things to think about when a relationship like that might be dissolving? Well, certainly uh, many people going into a marriage will have a prenuptial agreement that spells out what happens if there is a divorce. And I think you probably need the same kind of uh, arrangement going into a living agreement that says, you know, if this doesn't work out, this is what will happen. And, and I would, again, these agreements are all anticipating things going wrong. They're all anticipating various situations, whether they're going wrong with the relationship or someone just bad health or death or something like that. Um, and so possibly, just like we said before about an agreement to mediate disputes, perhaps even an agreement to have things resolved by a certain date. So you don't just have somebody hanging out there, their name's still on their lease, but they're not paying for so long. You just you just have some maybe some built-in resolutions where that makes sense. We've been talking about uh, cohabitation today. Well, how prevalent is it? This last factoid for you, large, expensive uh, metropolitan areas tend to have more doubled-up households, as do locations where multi-generational living is more common. Hawaii and California are the tops. Iowa and North Dakota have the least. Nobody, nobody's cohabitating in North Dakota. Nobody's, <laughs> well, nobody so wants space. to share an apartment in North Dakota with me. Everyone wants to live in Hawaii with me. Oh, come on. What a surprise. And just a reminder, if you ever have a personal finance question throughout the week, you can use our uh, email address and send it to us. We'll try to get an answer for you. It's money at mpbonline.org. Money Talk is a production of MPB Think Radio, funded in part by generous financial support from listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit moneytalks.mpbonline.org or listen to the podcast by searching for Money Talks on your favorite podcasting app. Our show was produced by Liz Gill, who is celebrating her birthday today. So happy birthday, Liz. Liz, and our call screener was Java Chapman. For Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson and Ryder Taff, I'm Kevin Farrell. Join us every Tuesday at 9 for Money Talks, heard only on MPB Think Radio. podcast.